Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Call Me Drop, your favorite Gundam podcast. My name is Isaac. And my name is Brian. And today we are concluding our review of Iron-Blooded Orphans with Season 2. Oh, boy. Uh, all right, Brian, uh, as our listeners, I'm sure remember, I started watching this series a little bit before you. You recently finished. What were your thoughts now that it's over? Just the, the first thing that pops in your head. The, the first thing that pops into my head is just disappointed love, I guess. I don't know what to say after that ending. <laughs> we're trying to create new compound nouns for Brian. <laughs> you know what? I'll just say this before we dive in everything. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed how different it was. Yes, I, I agree that the ending's bittersweet, but man, what a ride. What a uniquely written ride. And, you know, thank you to all the creators of this uh, this self-contained two-season Gundam series. It was really amazing. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first season. And then I, I think that enjoyment really carried over to the second season in terms of the pacing. It was really well-paced. There was always something happening that kept you wanting to watch the next episode. That said, I feel like maybe, whereas the first season, like we talked about before, was, what did we call it, like a glorified video game escort mission where it was very focused. Yeah. <laughs> and you had you had one singular task pretty much the whole time, which was Cudelia. Mm-hmm. This time, I feel like maybe there was not quite as clear of a path. I, I don't know. I felt a little yeah. less focused. but uh, Up bit, certain- yeah. Certainly still still a suspenseful, though. I guess if we start with story, uh, there was like the Earth, what I'll call the Earth arc, which was like yeah. the beginning, and that was mainly focusing on uh, like the Earth, Gallarhorn, with the character Aston and uh, Takaki. That was like, I don't know, what, six, eight episodes, so about a third of the second season. And that was really fun to watch, and it was good. Those were good characters. We got to know Aston, and then he got killed, <laughs> and, and a lot of other people got killed, and then that was kind of it. So looking back, I'm not really sure what the point of that Earth arc was. Like, I don't know. D- looking back, do you feel like that was needed? I wouldn't say it was so much needed, but I felt like it worked in the the overall story. Or well, I guess we're going to dive into the story now. I feel like if, as you said, for our, our gamer fans in the, uh, the listener audience... Season one was an escort mission for Cordelia, getting her from Mars to Earth. This was very much a almost Shakespearean tragedy of how <laughs> it, how inept this organization Tekadin and the the child soldiers in it, how incompetent they were when they actually had power and like you know when they were actually up up with the big fish, you know, yeah, because yep. <laughs> everything falls apart very quickly. <laughs> yeah, they they tried to swim in a in a pond that was way too big for them. I think yeah, there's, there's the shark showed up and that was about it. <laughs> I, I agree. Maybe the weakest part of the story was more towards the beginning of the season. It really just ramps up as the ser- as the season goes on. And I was really happy with, you know, all the fun incidents we had where they, they fight the mobile armor. You know, I've never seen a mobile armor look like that. This was a very new and fresh take on what mobile armors are supposed to look like. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, I would call that the, the second part of the story or the second arc yeah. the whole mobile armor calamity war history kind of thing and that started when they found in the buried gundam and the mobile armor drone right. also, also called the pluma on mars which i thought was a great way to do a reveal it plays with that whole history of the calamity war was 300 years ago you know these gundam frames are really old 
and then once we find out the origin of the Gundams, that they they were created as a way to destroy mobile armors, that really flips the whole mobile suit versus mobile armor idea on its head. Because in all of the other series, for the most part, mobile suits have come first, and mobile armors have always been developed after as a way to you know create a weapon somehow greater than a mobile suit. Yeah, I mean, if they ever do expand the series, you know, we've discussed this before that there's no reason why they should avoid a Calamity War series, even if it's on like manga or something like that. It'd be really interesting to see just how bad this war clearly was. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if if an organization like Gallahorn gets formed, which is little more than a military dictatorship, this clearly was a, a, a bad conflict across the Earth sphere. And that yeah. mobile armor fight, by the way, that you mentioned was was just glorious from in, from the beginning to the end. You know, when it when they first see it wake up in the desert on mm-hmm. Mars it was super cool. When it like shot the beam weapon to the sky and it sort of uh, you know swept the beam across and I think it you know hit the dirt or whatever. And this sort of dragon looking bird mobile armor comes out and you're just like, oh, yeah, it's on now. <laughs> like, and I believe that was. Maybe the first beam weapon we saw in the series? Probably, yeah. I mean, uh, I was about to say there's some other weapons that we see later on, but yeah, well. now I think about it, they're not quite beams. <laughs> no, yeah. No. So that, I think that made it more more impactful. And then plus, you know, when that mobile armor showed up, you knew right away it was going to kick the crap out of Kujan, uh, which he, he was really due for a, an ass-kicking. Yeah, him and all the well, pretty much every mobile suit that was there from Galahorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then um, everyone takes their turn against the mobile armor, and it takes Mika kind of going all out in the in the Barbados. The fight ends because he sort of just rips the mobile armor apart. I mean, people tried to you know shoot it, people tried to attack it with their physical yeah. weapons, but he he ends up sort of clubbing it a few times. He uses the McGillis's friend's sword. He he borrows it. And he, you know, smacks it in the face, and then he literally reaches under and just starts tearing its armor off, and, and, and you know, clawing his his way into the components, which is quite brutal. I had to watch it a few times because it's a pretty quick fight, but uh, <laughs> very nicely animated. So, yeah, going off of that, that was such a good scene. And oh, what else was a good scene in the series? Oh, where they um they get revenge on oh, what was that guy's name? Oh, that was Jazzly. With, with, yeah, Jazzly, Mr. Leopard Fur <laughs> Coat. <laughs> yeah, man, that battle went south for him quick. <laughs> it did. It really did. Yeah, yeah I would say that, that Tewa's Jazzly section is probably the third section. I, I really enjoyed the whole Tewa's angle throughout the series. I thought it was a really good change of pace from normal Gundam series, which is typically just military versus military Yeah, in some form or another. And this was very much like military versus civilians versus like the mob basically so i thought that was really neat yeah you know we got to see a lot of character growth this season too i felt like that was maybe the icing on the cake so to speak it was really good seeing a lot of the characters from season one start to have more responsibilities or just growing as characters like orga in some ways i felt like he was my favorite character this season just because of the growth he had to go through to really start dealing with, you know, all the political intrigue and all the military affairs at such a high level. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It was really shocking to see at the conclusion of the story that Orga did not make it. I was really surprised there, man, that came out of nowhere. I felt like I didn't know how he was going to go out. And I did feel like he was going to die at the end because he had made so many 
reckless decisions that had worked out. I knew that it was it was just a matter of time before one of them didn't. Yeah, and, he was McGillis's puppet. I mean, yeah, I know he liked to pretend he was Mister Big Brother for Tekaden, but ultimately, like almost everybody McGillis gets near, he was McGillis's puppet. Yeah, and then it turns out when McGillis doesn't actually have a real plan, things don't work out if you were if you were on his side. <laughs> In his defense, going up against Rustel Alien might not have been <laughs> the wisest idea. Probably I, not. I, I'm not sure if he was counting on Rustal to be at like the base during the coup <laughs> or he just thought Rustal would maybe stay in the background or something or let the, let the coup happen. But Oh boy, sometimes you come across somebody in life. You should not have like attracted their attention. <laughs> yeah. Rustal is not someone you want to be on their bad side. So yeah. that, that Gallarhorn coup is sort of the final art of the series. And this is yeah. where McGillis puts his uh, grand scheme into motion. I got to say the space battle with, Tekadon and Arian Rod and McGillis's Gallarhorn. That to right. me was sort of the climax of the series, but I felt like it happened maybe three episodes too soon. Because then after that, they went to Mars and basically everybody died. <clears throat> like you said, the Gallarhorn coup is kind of where it all falls apart for Orga, right? He allied himself with McGillis, who up to this point in the series has been the unmatched mastermind until you you pit him against Rustal Elian. And yeah. then. McGillis yeah. kind of just his balloon was popped and, and his his plan did not work out his plan if I take a high level view if I look back at McGillis's plan it essentially was basically I'm going to steal Gundam Bale and everyone will obey me uh, I'll give him a little bit more credit than that he was definitely counting on Mars the, the Mars branch of Gallahorn for support it didn't seem like he had much support on Earth because I assume Arian Rod really locked that down the seven stars on Earth yeah. sort of just, they didn't go against him, but they declined to help him. So they stayed neutral. So he, he did not anticipate that. Plus he arrested like a ton of their people at like that one council meeting. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Almost <laughs> everyone at that meeting got arrested. <laughs> he didn't do them any favors. That's for sure. Right. So as we've said, I think in the last episode about Iron-Blooded Orphans, this is a very smaller scope of a story. So it really looked like there are only a handful of fleets in the Earth's sphere. This isn't UC where there's, you know, dozens, maybe possibly, you know, a hundred different fleets flowing around doing combat and stuff. There was pretty much two fleets at the climax of this series. There was the Mars fleet, the Rebel fleet, the backed up uh, McGillis, and then Arian Rod. That was it. But it was such a well-done battle, I felt, even though the scale was smaller. It was really, um, really interesting to watch. And I enjoyed the intrigue and watching Ristal really manipulate the situation to his advantage and defeat uh, McGillis. So I, I really liked that. As far as it ending kind of, or climaxing a little early, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, to an extent. It felt like... If you remember Lord of the Rings, like they have the big, you know, battle at Mordor or whatever at the end and destroy the ring. And then like twenty five minutes of them like going <laughs> at, you know, the Shire and like Minas Tirith and all that. And they yeah. like crown Aragorn and all that. Um <laughs> this kind of felt like that where like we had this huge battle and then yeah, now that I think about it, you're right, Brian. We had this huge fleet battle where like all the ships get destroyed and they have to evacuate to Mars. And then we get them surrounded at Mars and it's just a, a shootout. It's a turkey shoot, you know, they just murder Yeah. Yeah. They just kill all the main characters, pretty much, and the secondary characters escape. Yeah, and I don't think we can, we can't understate how great that that fleet battle was with in terms of not necessarily scale, like you said, but just yeah. 
the way it was it was done where they tech it in second ship the hota ruby or hota ruby however you say it yeah it was disabled and she, the gundam floros uh shino's mobile suit was was damaged so they had really they had one shot to take out rustal and they loaded the damaged gundam floros onto it with shino going on a suicide mission and they launched the hota ruby at the arian rod fleet and he got so close and they blew open the side and he was in his uh, super galaxy cannon mode ready to fire the Dan's leaf at Rustall and he got the shot off but that freaking Juliet just knocked it just a little bit and the shot missed and man I was so pissed like <laughs> I could not believe it that would have been I'm not saying that the main characters all had to survive but to me that shot should have hit and that would have been the perfect ending to the series like yeah, I was maybe. just so disappointed that that shot didn't hit I mean, since the moment like Rustle shows up, he kind of takes control of the situation. But that was—I think—that's the only time we see him kind of panic because he like sees how close it shot to his bridge. Oh yeah, he, he gasps when yeah. when his bridge was hit. And I was so hoping like that somehow that shot would come back to matter later on in the in the next whatever three or four episodes where um oh. like maybe. You know, maybe he thought he had won, but then they probably hadn't repaired the hole where the shot did hit. And, you know, maybe something could get in or something would happen and his ship would blow up. But no. Oh, man. His his bridge decompresses. Yeah. (laughs) I just that was so deflating for me as as a a viewer. Sadly, no. But I must say the Dainsleaf massacre was glorious. I really like seeing it happen. But (laughs) the one in space against the rebel fleet against mcgillis's fleet was was pretty awesome you know yeah man can we call that a super weapon well we have to i guess i mean even for gallahorn it was kind of taboo to touch it'd be the equivalent of their using nukes right for our yeah, world I, mean, I think within the context of yeah. the series that is clearly the best you just you don't weapon. use it yeah you don't use it and they had to fabricate uh tech it and using it <laughs> every before time they could even okay. use it yeah <laughs> oh man and then with respect to the ending Look, I know Gundam is known for killing people. I mean, the creator of Gundam, is, his nickname is Kill 'Em All, Tamino. Hmm. But man, they they really killed pretty much everyone who mattered. Yeah, you know who I was surprised died much earlier on? Naze. Oh yeah, he he almost feels like a character pulled from Cowboy Bebop or something. He does, uh, yeah. To our unknown fans, Cowboy Bebop's this anime that came out in like the I don't know late '90s, early 2000s is very popular. Check it out underrated but anyways naze i felt he shouldn't have died then almost it would have been better to see him die later on but then again maybe his death kind of showed that this series isn't going to end how you think it is you know the heroes aren't going to high five at the end as the enemy flag gets lowered you know (laughs) yeah i never felt that there was a high five scene coming in this show but i didn't think the decimation would quite be as as complete (laughs) as it was he he died at what remy the halfway point of the series or so much yeah Um, as the situation deteriorated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his death really made you hate Rustal's brand of Gallarhorn, I guess, because it, yeah. it was basically Kujan versus Naze or Naze. And, and if I remember right, Naze was trying to surrender, but Kujan just wouldn't answer the phone so that he could have an excuse for just killing him. Um, but that battle was great, too, with Amida, Naze's wife or, or whatever, one of his wives. Yeah, one of his, <laughs> the harem. Yeah. She shot Kujan's bridge from, like, super far away, which was super badass, really good way to, for her to go out. But, yeah, super sad. Yeah. So, yeah, let's, should we talk about the body count? Like, let's, let's see, who, who, can we count who died, right? So, Mika died, 
I we guess. have to elaborate on that because yeah. <laughs> this is maybe one of the only times a Gundam pilot gets killed in the series before the end of the series. Not even like dies like right before the credits, but he died like the final episode near the start of the episode, I think, or the middle point. Akihiro died. Horga uh, died. Yeah. Shino died. Hush died. Yeah. Of all people. Naze and Amida died. Laughter died. Oh, man. Don't even get me started on laughter. <laughs> Jazzly died. McGillis died. Kujan died. Those were like almost all of the major characters from this season. I think I counted at least 10 just now, maybe 11. And they Pretty were much, all yeah. dead. <laughs> I really liked that about this season, though. It was very, I wouldn't say realistic, but heavy. This was a heavier Gundam season than a lot of other Gundam seasons. <laughs> it might be the opposite of like Gundam Build Fighters <laughs> or something like that. I like that about this season. It was so self-contained that they could make these decisions. You know, there's no need for us to have all these characters live on and then, you know, we see them in the next war where they fight some new organization with, you know, villainous looking mobile suits. Yeah. I just, man, Mikazuki's death. <laughs> I, I mean, I like when main characters die. Don't get me wrong, but I, I, yeah. I think there's a limit of how many you should kill. And I think the series may have passed it for me. I, there's, there's no one left to feel good about the ending for, for the most part. Like to me, I don't know. It just, yeah. it just felt a little hollow. Especially because Rustal basically won at the end, and he oh yeah we didn't really meet Rustal that much until season two, and we don't even really have that much backstory from Rustal about like why he's doing what, what he's doing. I mean, we kind of learn about it through his interactions with Julieta, but him of all people winning was kind of weird. And then just they killed the entire cast, and I I did feel like this series maybe compared to a lot of of the alternate timelines, I felt like there's a lot of potential there and, and for a sequel or, or something. And, but without pretty much all the characters, I mean, I guess there is some younger characters available now, but it just seemed like maybe a waste of potential. Maybe I I'd say it's, it was such a great setting. I'm not sure they can continue the story from here since it looks like Rustal's very powerful, but also wise enough <laughs> to see that there has to be change. So he's clearly made things more democratic and peaceful. So I'd be surprised if there's more wars. Well, he, he brought about change, but only with himself in power. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, we got to take what we can get, all right? This is Gallahorn, <laughs> all right? You, you can't vote for your new uh, fleet admiral. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can vote, but just as long as you vote Rustal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, definitely a prequel. Room for plenty of prequels. Sequels? Not sure. Still, though, it was. I, I really enjoyed the series. And, you know, whoever Ryan team did this, please do another Gundam series. UC, if you want, if you don't want to do UC because there's so much baggage, then move on to another alternate universe. But man, this was this was a fun ride. Very heavy, um, but a fun ride. If these writers were to do another series, I would love to see them take a crack at maybe some something like an original series later on in the UC, or maybe you know they don't have to play with so many established characters. They could feel free to kill more people. They just make their own characters and and then kill them. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> So with that overview of the story, basically everybody died. Everybody died, but <laughs> their deaths are not in vain because a, a vague form of democracy comes to Mars and Gallahorn pretty much scales back from being such a, a brutal dictatorship to being more of a, I guess, dictatorship open to democracy, transitioning slowly. <laughs> yeah, they, it did say that they were like democratic at the end, but it, you know, it just did acknowledge that Rustal was 
elected as the first the first okay. person in power. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> wonder wonder why. But the guy with like the only operational fleet with super weapons is elected to lead Earth. <laughs> right. So I mean, in a way, Rustall accomplished McGillis's goal yeah, for right. him. So that's kind of interesting. I, and I guess the other takeaway from the ending that was like you said, it makes all their death not in vain is that Gedelia did work to pass that act that banned, uh, you know, human debris. <laughs> uh, hey, I just realized something. Hang on. Let me know if you agree with me. Okay. So McGillis's whole plot for all the backstabbing and the, the tomfoolery and the intrigue was to launch a coup to seize power, to make a democratic transition. At least so he says, let's take my face value. Bristol having all this power has to go through like, a couple battles, you know, one in space to t- put down the rebels and then one on Mars to, to wipe out Tekken. He has to go through that to pretty much realize, you know what? Yeah, I guess we should transition <laughs> to democracy. If McGillis just talked to Rustall <laughs> for like, I don't know, maybe they had like a, a six hour conversation or like some type of debate, they maybe could have just agreed that, you know what? Yeah, we shouldn't transition to democracy. <laughs> I, to- I, to- I 100% agree with you. It seems like maybe there was just a miss. You know, some miscommunication there. And uh, what does that teach you, everybody? That you should communicate better with people. <laughs> Pretty much. This is like a case of like two branches of the government just not talking at all and then just assuming the other one would be hostile to them or their ideas yep. when they probably could have just met and like hashed <laughs> things out and realized they were more or less on the same page and everything would be okay. But 100% agree. Yeah. So with that overview, let's dive into all the different characters because there's a lot to unpack here. So, you know, you got Mika. So how do you feel about Mika now? Okay. I thought Mika at the beginning of season one was going to be pretty much our blank slate kind of hero. And to an extent, you know, I won't say his personality is flat. He, he's stoic. He doesn't speak too much, I think. Not doesn't seem like an emotional guy, really. He's along with you for the ride. He's the main character. I enjoyed him as a pilot i thought it was a brave choice to kill him all in all i'd say having watched both seasons that he's probably near the top yeah probably the top five of uh, my favorite gundam pilots gundam main characters protagonists well i mean you do hate most gundam protagonists so <laughs> hang on <laughs> there might be a low bar <laughs> listeners hang on let me defend myself i wouldn't say i hate the gundam protagonists i just i might not like the factions they fight for like the federation <laughs> but i don't hate the protagonists all right we'll, we'll stop right there all right Almero is a very understandable character okay he might be fighting Zeon, but at the same time i i can definitely understand being in a situation you don't want to be in and you have to jump in a cockpit yeah. <laughs> i mean mika he definitely didn't have the most personality of you know any of the gundam protagonists for sure but you know he was put through the paces in this series yeah. his body kept working less and less after using barbatos or too hard basically you know after the fight with the mobile armor he basically has to stay hooked up to barbatos to walk so that's pretty depressing and yeah, I mean, he didn't he didn't get a happy ending. I mean, even when he died, when he was passing out, I think he noticed that his blood was getting on the bracelet that Atra had made for him, and he wondered if uh, Cadelia would would be able to help him clean it later slash explain why he got yeah. it dirty. That was just so sad that he just had no concept of what had happened to him and that he was dying. So, um, but he did have that that cool moment at the end where he kind of stepped up in place of Orga and gave the speech to Tekadin. Wasn't a long speech, yeah. but that was kind of the the finality of, of Mika's character, right? His Giran moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
He's like, you know what? Orga's dead. It's up to me to do the speech. The last decadent <laughs> speech before we all die or go on our ways. <laughs> but he had a kid. He had a kid at the end. He did. Yeah. Interesting with Atra, right? So He did, yeah. We'll, we'll get to the kid in, in, when we get to yeah. Atra, maybe. Maybe something I found out maybe you don't, you're not aware of. Uh, yeah. Rest in peace. You were a, an interesting character. Pretty much got to see the world of Gundam from a child slave soldier. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Isaac, your favorite Orga, also Orga. known as the King of Mars. Or the King of Mars. Okay. The hopeful King of Mars. Man, the, Orga is like a case example of like... I guess even really the best and most caring people can be seduced by the the lust for power. He thought he'd be the head of the Mars army or whatever and control Mars under McGillis's, you know, new perfect Gallahorn, but um twas not to be. I I'd say had he the political acumen to approach other parts of Gallahorn, like Rustall maybe, even directly he could have maybe turned on McGillis and said, hey, this guy's plotting a coup. And then, I don't know, maybe there's an alternate timeline in <laughs> where Tekadin is named the Mars branch of Gallahorn. We see Orga in a uniform. Because Gallahorn is very much like that, right? You clearly can backstab each other and, <laughs> you know, you get rewarded or, or severely punished depending on what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I loved how Orga, re- we really got to see him reach his peak as, you know, the head of Tekadin and really this this major player. But still... His knowledge or grasp of the situation wasn't enough, but definitely one of my favorite characters. His death was pretty shocking the way it happened. Yeah, I liked it. I'd say he was a co-protagonist. Yeah, I I agree. He was definitely a co-protagonist. And I I really enjoyed how much his character grew this season. Right when you start the season, it's clear that he has matured a little bit. He's much more of a mob boss in this season than he was in the last one. The way he dresses. Yeah, he he wears like the coat over his uh, suit. You know, with a, with a loose tie. Yeah. And, you know, he's having to deal with, like, the daily struggle of a of an organization, like finances and personnel decisions. Who do I send to Earth? Who do I keep on Mars? <laughs> and you know what? He went out like a mob boss, too, getting assassinated by a random hit put out on him. So while it was sudden, I think it really fit the character that he had become. I'll add one critique to his plot. I felt like him being killed by Noblis's goons, that... I wouldn't say it came out of left field, but he should have had a different kind of death, I felt. Like, I would have understood it more if it was like maybe Gallahorn Assassins or something, or a hit team sent by uh, Rustall. But Noblis's goons, Noblis was too shadowy to really have earned that kill, I feel. That's probably fair. Do I think it's the best death in the world? No. Does it fit the situation? I th- I kind of think it does. I always thought that he would go out on some sort of suicide, piloting the, the you know the ship into something. Yeah, that seems more style. <laughs> but it, you know, it it didn't go that way. I don't know. To me, I just all of season two, I got the sense that like unlike season one, where most of his reckless decisions worked out, in season two, most of his decisions didn't work out, and they sort of just snowballed into his ultimate demise. He placed far too much trust into McGillis. Yeah. And so, do you agree then? Did, did he let the King of Mars title get to his head? I'd say so. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Because he started out in season one wanting essentially just safety for Tekken, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll earn some money doing some jobs. But, you know, as long as everybody has food and a place to sleep, 
he's doing his job. You know, he feels good about himself. Wanting to be like supreme military force on Mars, that's so much above what Tekadin started at and probably what Tekadin could even be. Even if McGillis pulled off his plan, even in whatever McGillis Gallahorn version he creates, oh, come on, Tekadin running Mars? There's no way. We know they'd be underneath whatever Gallahorn goons McGillis put in control that were loyal to him. To do something of that scale, he would need more people anyway. Like, he'd have to hire... Taywas. <laughs> yeah, he'd, he'd have to hire 10 times, 20 times the amount of people that he has in Tekadin right now. So yeah. those new people wouldn't even be Tekadin. They would just be people that Tekadin hired. So right. I agree. It's pie-in-the-sky yeah. dreams on Orga's half. He did have two really good character moments that I wanted to point out. Like, towards the end, when he's kind of done with trusting McGillis... He, you know, McGillis says, oh, we can still win. There'll be some casualties and Orga punches him in the face. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. it says any casualty is family to us at Tekadin, so you can't take any casualty lightly. So I thought that was good. That was in character. And yeah. then I think one of the biggest decisions he faced in season two was the decision to turn his back on Tewaz and attack Jazly. That was a big decision. After Jazly killed Laughter, you know, yeah. all of Tekadin looked at him and pressured him into making that call of, we have to kill Jazly now. And he says, he tells Mika to go all the way and crush them to the last bit. That was his full turn into independent Orga. Something I really liked too was, there's a point, kind of like what you mentioned, where he realizes how bad the situation is. He's back on Mars, you know, this is near the end of the series. And there's nothing to do. You know, he already played his hand with McGillis. And even if you wanted to go back, there's nothing to do. You can't really surrender to Gallahorn at that point. Um, they're not even going to take the surrender. They need to destroy Tekadin as an example. And you know, it must have been such a frustrating situation to realize you did something wrong. You can't undo it. And the punishment and repercussions are still coming. <laughs> yep. And I think they even so, he even found yeah. out like what time they were coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> Rustal <laughs> told him, like, we're going to bombard you if you don't surrender. <laughs> all in all. I really liked Orga's arc, fall, demise. It was it was really fun to watch. Yeah. It's a ride, for sure. Yeah, I think he was the best developed character of the whole series. Definitely, the most complex. Yeah, I liked it. Rest in peace, Orga. You had led a good fight, but boy, this was a whole other ball game. You couldn't handle it. How about Akihiro, our pal Akihiro? Oh, Akihiro. Our, our fan favorite. I'll go a little bit further. I'm going to put him up for best death because he kills... Our longtime hated enemy, Yok <laughs> Kujin, and, and in the most delightful way. I must say. What would you call those? Like pliers? Like Gundam pliers? They're not scissors. Um, <laughs> the Akihiro Crunch. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> from, from, from General Mills. <laughs> his his of vitamin for a complete breakfast, Akihiro Crunch. His story just ended up being tragedy after tragedy, right? Last season, we saw yeah. him lose his, his little brother. Of course. This after season, finding him. After yes. finding yes. him, after searching for, I guess, half his life. You're right. So we should say that we saw him lose his brother as a child, find his brother, and then watch his brother get killed. This season, we saw him lose uh, Aston, who was essentially like his sort of adopted little brother. He, he came from the same human debris ship, I think, as Akihiro. Yeah. And then he lost uh, Laughter. When Jazzly yeah. put the hit out on her, which 
I actually thought that was one of the better romances in the series. I thought that one could actually go somewhere. It seemed like they were slowly developing it. I didn't feel like it was super forced. And then he just couldn't survive the Dan's Leaf bombardment at the end. Um, I think that dude had so much shrapnel in him in the end that it just looked so painful. You're right. The only good thing that happened was he was able to kill Kujan at the very end. Pretty much. And in the most amazing way, crushing him slowly to death, you get to see Eok in his final moments still suffering. And then he's he's finally dead. But yeah, Akihiro was, despite being freed at the start of the series, he died the way human debris dies in combat and very painfully and without joy or happiness. Very, very tragic. Yeah, just yeah. Oh, just terrible. Poor Akihiro. Yeah. Rest in peace, Akihiro. You mobile suit cruncher. <laughs> How about uh, Eugene? So he was like the deputy boss. He was a blonde guy. I don't know if you remember Eugene. Yeah, Eugene. He would complain a lot at the beginning of the series, right? So <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. But he's actually very sharp. Eugene lived, correct? There's he a lot did. of characters. I apologize to the audience. There's a lot of characters to keep track of. Um, you, yes. you are okay. correct. He is one of the few that survived. I wouldn't say he, I, I remember him having much of an arc. But I'm glad he survived just because he, he was mostly a good guy. You know, he, he he wasn't so much a fighter on the battlefield, but more able to give advice and some brains to uh, to discussions. So Yeah, and, and he was always using the Alive and Yana system on the on the ship. He was the one piloting the ship. There you go. Yeah. So I felt like he was the most level headed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was that one scene, I think, towards the end of this season where Orgo was moping about something and, and, and uh, Eugene basically told him to shut up and go do his job and, like, inspire everybody or give the order <laughs> or whatever. I thought that was good. I, you know, that's how much Eugene has grown over the series. So he, he knows what he's doing now. And if there is a Tekadin left after this, I would imagine that Eugene is in, in charge of it. There isn't. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yes, if there was, he would be the one that would organize every union every year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or, I mean, I guess they all like erase their names and stuff, so they won't call themselves Tekadin. But if they right. made another organization, I assume yeah. that yeah. He, is the, he is the leader. Yeah. Mick Myrtle, I'm sure, invites them over once a year. And they have, <laughs> they have cannoli and, you know, there's, there's framed pictures of everybody that passed away. And <laughs> they, they talk about it, you know. They exchange Christmas cards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about Shino? Oh, uh, Shino. Actually, his death was pretty awesome, too. Oh, I think he... Okay, he beats Akihiro on scope, but what, what Akihiro gets in points is killing Eok. Yeah. Shino, it was sad to see him go because he was such a positive guy. Orgaz gets pretty negative, so does Akihiro sometimes. Mikazuki. But yeah, Shino always seemed pretty upbeat despite the situation. Sad to see him die, but man, it was quite the epic death. Yeah, quite the plot to try to hit that bridge. Yeah, and like I already said, to me that was the climax of the series. That was the most Tekadin tactic uh, to to end the series that you could have. Well, and I was... <laughs> hang on, Brian. There was like a few episodes after that, so you thought they would kill Rustal by destroying the bridge of his ship, and then the next three episodes would be them like what mopping up Gallarhorn or oh, well, establishing the new government I, I, or... I feel like the, I feel like the series climax like three four episodes too early oh yeah okay yeah I see what you mean but yeah I had a feeling that this series was going to end differently just because of how different things had been going yeah. almost no time in colonies very small fleets very small battles yeah and then when we, as soon as they missed Rustal's ship I knew oh these guys are screwed <laughs> yeah 
there's yeah, no way to recover. <laughs> I was just most upset, I think, at, at his death uh, out of all of them. I, I felt like he had done so much for Tekken, and you know, he put it all on the line. I, I felt like he deserved for that shot to hit. And um, so, yeah, that that one hurt. Chino's death really hurt, but too so bad. it goes. Yeah, he he was a cool guy, and uh, he always uh, insisted on painting his mobile suits that obnoxious pink. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, listeners, that um, you know, a lot of the time in giant robot shows or even Gundam, we see pink a lot because that's actually like a young samurai color um, because it's the same color of cherry blossoms. Oh. So I think Japanese anime, the the artist kind of transported that color over. That's the the warrior's color, you know, a young brave warrior's color. It's not. You know, it doesn't necessarily have the, the connotations that we have here in the West or the United States where that's a girl's color, feminine color, whatever. Got it. Mil- no, that makes sense. Nowadays, yeah, nowadays a millennial color, I guess, but whatever. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Shino. Shino. Oh, he was mourned by, what's his name? Oh, yeah. I had to look it up because I don't actually say his name a whole lot. His name is... Uh... Blondie Mechanic. <laughs> yeah, Blondie Mechanic. Blondie Mechanic had a huge crush on Shino. Yamagi. Yamagi. Yeah, yeah. Mike, that's his name. Yeah, I'm, I think that's the first time we've seen this in Gundam. So very progressive. I think so, yeah. I, I guess they didn't do it like outright, right? Um, it was a very subtle workplace romance, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need HR catching on to it and causing problems, so they, <laughs> they stayed very low-key. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, this is pretty progressive for Gundam. Um, I, I don't think that's been in any other show to my knowledge. I'd be surprised if it was. It would be something like only the writers, maybe, or like, yeah, the the team would know. They're like, oh yeah, we put this line in here because it means so and so. But this yep. was much more explicit, so very nice to see in uh, 2020. Hope we get to see more of that. Yep, makes sense. Yeah. It's the future, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. How about Takaki? He was the guy who stayed on Earth. Didn't he essentially become like office help? <laughs> Yeah, he became like a secretary to yeah. uh, the head of our brows replacement. Looking at the big picture, he probably made the right decision to stay on Earth instead of going back with Tekken to Mars because he has his kid sister that he has to take care of. And basically everybody else died. So if he had gone with Tekken, he probably would have died too and his sister would be all alone. He has the opposite fate as Biscuit, right? Like Biscuit tried to do everything so that his his uh, sisters could live a good life and you know, yeah. he died. So Taki took the opposite path, and guess what? He lived. Good on you, yeah, Taki. Mm-hmm. He has a bright career ahead of him in uh, in Arbrow. <laughs> As Isaac said, office help. That's how you get he, on the inside track. <laughs> you can you can live a really exciting life with Tekken and die at whatever these they were all what 16, 17, yeah. 18. or yeah. you can live a really yeah. long time <laughs> as a as a boring office worker. Yeah, but you know what? You got to live on Earth, and it's not that bad. <laughs> you know what the best perk is? Not being shot by a Dainsley. <laughs> not being killed from orbit. <laughs> that is uh, 100% correct. You nailed it. <laughs> got it. How about Hush? Hush was sort of, I'll say, Mika's intern. And I don't know. He, he died on Mars in the last battle, which was kind of weird to me. I felt like they started out with maybe a bigger plan for Hush, and then... Either they just didn't get to it, or they forgot about it until they had to kill him at the end. I don't know. What did you think? Ultimately, I'd say he was one of the more, not maybe not forgettable, but less important characters. His death didn't have as much impact as everybody else's. I don't even remember exactly how he died. Was he just buying them time? Was he on team by time? He was on um, team by time, yeah. Okay, okay. I vaguely remember now. 
I don't have much to say about Hush because like his name, you know, there's not much to say. <laughs> it was a pretty sad death. The whole yeah. time he had been trying to like live up to Mika, you know, without having the Alaya Vinyana system. And at the end, you know, he, he gets, you know, mortally wounded. And Mika actually comes and rescues him. And he says, you know, no, Mika, leave this part to me. You know, I'll handle it. Don't worry about it. And Mika understands that he's dying. And he says, you know, okay, hush, uh, I'm relying on you. And then, he, you know, he flies away. They go take a dance leaf to the chest or whatever. But yeah, so super sad for Hush. You know, he didn't really meet his goals in life. Yet another tragedy. So rest in peace, Hush. Uh, you gave it your all. You will not be missed. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> On behalf of Galahorn, I must say that you will not be missed. <laughs> oh, man. We've noticed all of our enemies die, but you, we noticed the least. <laughs> uh, how about Ride? Okay, little ginger boy. <laughs> he had to live. <laughs> because he's just too young. I, I enjoyed Ride. Like you said, he did live, so he was one of the few people who lived. He had two sort of great moments in season two. Um, one was a really sad moment in the mobile armor fight. He puts himself between the agricultural center and the mobile armor. And the beam right. up and hits him, but it doesn't destroy him because his suit has the nano laminate armor. And so it just like spreads off of his suit and just fries the town behind him <laughs> due to like all the ricocheting. Like, oh, it was so sad. And he's just... He's in his suit, you know, thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, because the beam hits him. But he's not dead, and instead he looks back, and the whole town is just incinerated. So that that was the poor ride. <laughs> he, he gave it his all, but it just didn't work. Bittersweet uh, survival. <laughs> and then he had one of the best moments in the last episode. Uh, he was Ooh. the one. You know, he went full Mark Wahlberg from The Departed, and he went <laughs> and assassinated Noblis as revenge for, for Noblis yeah. uh, putting the hit out on Orga. Got him right in the toilet. The <laughs> man, man can't sit in peace. He's got to get shot four times in the face. <laughs> yep. He, Noblest got what was coming to him. So I give him credit for that. You know, he, he finished Tekadin's business, right? Hang on. Do you think all of Tekadin knew that was going to go down? Or did Ride just do it on his own? Uh, well, he didn't go there by himself. If I remember right, he had a few other Tekadin people with him. I mean, not that there are really that many senior members left of Tekadin, but I would imagine that at least Eugene knows. Everybody went along with it, probably. Um, how about Atra? Atra, wow. You know what? I don't think she really had too much of an arc except being constantly fearful of Mikazuki's life. But it was interesting to see. This might be the first time we see like a child born from a Gundam pilot within the same series. I think that's uh, right. I can't remember. Yeah. I can't think of another one. I'm but surprised maybe it was one her, too. I thought it would be Crudelia. I thought I thought Atro would be like the little sister of, you know, Tekadin, but <laughs> the fact that she ends up being the mother of Mika's offspring, yeah. that was uh, a little shocking to me. You thought she was the Fraubo when she was actually the, the sailor. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was surprised. I was like, well, you're good for more than just cooking. Yeah. <laughs> I um, guess it uh, looks like Mikazuki likes to uh, work out in the kitchen, too, because it looks like he put a bun in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think he did it in the kitchen. I think they had to do it in Barbatos because that was the only way he could move at the end of the series. So it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I can't uh, use my left arm. You're going to have to help me out. <laughs> so this is what I was talking about earlier. So at the very end of the series, we see, like you said, Atra with her kid with Mikazuki that was obviously conceived before he died. Mm -hmm. uh, the kid's name is Kotsky, August, 
Mixtra, which is Atra's last name. Her name is Atra Mixtra. And then the last name is Bernstein. Because (laughs) according to uh, there was some event or some Q&A thing in 2017 where it was officially confirmed that Atra and Kudelia uh, married post-show. They just got married. Yep. So they're, they're, they're raising the kid together. Okay. But they're never together. I mean... We see Cordelia. Doesn't she leave Earth and then go back to Mars? Atra's on Mars at the end, but I don't know. I figured, I don't know. It seemed like Cordelia was on Earth much longer than you would have assumed. I thought she was there for years, maybe doing whatever political. Because, I mean, a lot of time has passed. We see Ride grow up. So I assume she was on Earth doing a lot of political work with Arbrow and, you know, being there for Mars. But, huh. That's very yeah. progressive. I had no idea she and Atra would have married. Yeah. So mm. she kept her promise to Atra by helping mm. raise Mika's kid. They must have spent a lot of time together after the show because I really don't remember them spending a ton of time together during the show. You know, maybe they had their few panic moments. Or I remember at the beginning when Atra shows up, they they do spend a lot of time cooking. <laughs> but yeah. aside, from, aside from that, I never got any feelings of you know, romantic interest between them. I, I don't think that was conveyed very much. Do you? Um, yeah, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have seen it between them. I mean, they definitely had that whole love triangle thing going with, with yeah. Mika. Um, but I would say the commonality was Mika, not necessarily each other, I guess. But I mean, I, you know, I, whatever yeah. works for people, that's fine. Maybe they agreed that like, yeah. they both wanted to care for him. We made a promise to Mikazuki. We have to go through with this. Might as well, yeah. you know. I know you're a good cook. I have a stable job in politics. <laughs> There's no way this can't work out. It just and works. We both, yeah, we both love Mikazuki, and we both love his son. So we'll we'll make this work somehow, and we'll all live happily ever after. <laughs> we'll get it done. But very yeah. progressive. Next time, I hope they, they show romance, you know, from the get-go. You know, no need to kind of shoehorn it in when you have to read about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is a very much like a, a Dumbledore is gay situation, right? Where after the yeah. series is over, you announce it on Twitter and it's kind of like, well, uh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> like, why didn't you put it in the book then? But We're happy to see it, but it could have been done better. <laughs> yeah, but I guess theoretically, if there is ever a, a, a sequel in the future that focuses on Akatsuki, the kid, yeah, and assuming that these two are Atra and and uh, Kudeli are still alive, maybe we would see that relationship at, at some point. Hopefully. You yeah. know what's going to happen, though, right? Don't you, Brian? Akatsuki, he's going to unearth a new Gundam. But unfortunately, that's going to trigger all the mobile armors in the Earth Sphere to awaken. And now he has to lead a group of Gundams to fight the mobile armors. Hey, I would he's watch gonna it. Lead, yeah, he's going to lead Galahorn. Galahorn's going to be like excavating Gundams because like, they're losing the war. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch it. I'll be there. Sign me up. Old Rostal's going to be there. He's probably going to be in like a wheelchair. Gonna, like <laughs> Give them advice from the bridge. They'll have like uh, Degwin glasses on. <laughs> probably, yeah. He's got the cane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last tech in person before we move on to Cadelia. Maribit Stapleton, a.k.a. Iron Nina Purpleton. Her dating the mechanic was hilarious. Yeah, that felt very 0083 in a way. <laughs> yeah. If anyone earned it, it was him because he, he needs all the help he can get. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have much to say about Maribit, but um, she lived, so that's something. She she's on the short list of Tekken survivors. I almost um, feel like Maribit and, and uh, Kudelia. You could have had one character sort of being like the competent female lead that could have been able to deal with 
the political intrigue or the business. I, f- I feel like having both of them kind of took away time from the other one. That's probably fair. Yeah. yeah. So with that, how about Kudelia? It was interesting seeing her come back, but now that this was essentially, you know, the McGill's plot season, she was almost unnecessary to the story, I think. She did her little escort mission to go to Earth and then plead on behalf of Mars autonomy. But now she was just almost another politician in the background. I mean, really, she didn't do much this season. She was kind of sidelined almost the whole time. She is helping raise Mika's kid at the end. But beyond a few appearances in the beginning, you know, regretting that she has to stay on the farm and she can't go anywhere. She played into it a little bit at the end, you know, connecting Tekken to, to see if they could get the Arbrow guy to erase their identities. But she really didn't have a major presence in the, in the second season at all, which is kind of jarring considering that she was the main goal in the first season. Right. Um, I feel like that could have also had a simple fix, too with McGillis wanting to incorporate her into the plot, into his whole revolution, by essentially almost offering her and Orga sort of co-leadership and, I don't know, maybe making some type of tension between them. Not tension, but, I don't know, romantic interest or something. But anyways, pretty much saying, whereas Orga would be king of Mars, under my revolution, you will be queen of Mars. So that could have definitely brought her more into the plot and having her be involved in the political intrigue and stuff and hopefully ultimately being you know along every battle but escaping and being one of the survivors at the end i thought so it could have been handled differently i thought yeah i'm not sure why that decision was made i mean maybe was fan reaction maybe not great Did people not like cadelia maybe they diminished her role a bit i'm not sure yeah more could have been done with her in maybe different ways than we saw in season one she doesn't have to be a damsel in distress but ultimately it wasn't a big issue for the season yeah. I mean, she did meet one of her goals at the end. She, you know, she signed the ban on human debris. So that was nice. Yeah. And Mars autonomy, right? From uh, Rastal. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's go to Tewaz before we get to the big fishes at Gallarhorn. Your pal, Cannoli McMurdo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cannoli Gundam. Yeah. Like, oh, man. Cannoli funnels. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they don't shoot, they spray. Good luck using your sensors now with the uh, Minoski cream. <laughs> Do we have any more thoughts on McMurdo this season? Or He tried to survive and avoid getting all of Tewa's crushed by Gallahorn. So his actions really made sense. You know, there wasn't a lot he could do after a certain point because it was just Horn executing Tekadin. But it was good to see him back again, and I'm glad he made it through and survived. How about your pals Naze or Naze and his, his wife Amida? Season one, I wasn't a fan of the whole harem ship because I feel like it's just such a pointless fan service thing. You know, walking into this whole season, I've had my expectations blown away because I also thought the pilots were all just going to be fan service. But um, that ended up not being true. I'll go. I'll say the same thing about Naze and, and Amita. You know, you end up really rooting for them as the series went on and you kind of feel their loss when they're killed, ultimately. They had less to gain than almost anybody else, but they die earlier than almost every other character. <laughs> they weren't in it to be, you know, lords of Mars or, you know, gain huge amounts of power and wealth. Like, Tekken was their ally, so what if, I mean, maybe they would have profited a bit if Tekken got to power. But they, they really didn't have a dog in the fight, and they end up dying. <laughs> It was pretty tragic and I guess a sign of things to come that depending on who you're friends with and the situations they get into, you could get pulled in and things could go pretty bad for you too. 
Yeah, I agree. They they got a real raw deal in terms of their fate. I mean, getting shot with the first volley of Dan's leaves, just not a good way to, to go out. But they at least went out like badasses. I mean, I think they had a good exit. Also, Nay is one of the best dressers in the series. <laughs> sure. He's a sure snazzy dresser. Yeah. Not many men could pull off a hat like that, sir, but you did it <laughs> astonishing well. You win our colony drop trophy for the best dressed man of Iron Blooded Orphans. <laughs> Congratulations, sir. If we ever do like a fashion episode, I'm sure we'll we'll bring oh. back knees. Oh, sure. we're absolutely doing a fashion episode. Comment <laughs> below if you want one. Comment below if you don't want one. But guess what? It's happening anyway. <laughs> so just give your suggestions now. Just jump to the suggestions. Yep, do it. Best Gundam fashion. <laughs> and, you know, Amita really showed how skilled of a pilot she was. I mean, maybe if she had fought in more battles, maybe Tekadin could have done a little better. Like if they had had her at the end. She, she you know, she held off Julieta pretty much the whole time in an inferior suit. I wish, she, yeah. I wish we could have got her a Gundam. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why not, right? I don't think we had a single woman pilot a Gundam this series, despite having multiple female pilots. Come on, Sunrise, what's going on over <laughs> there? <laughs> yep, it's like they went like right. almost there, but not all the way. Yeah, just, just pull one of them in a Gundam. <laughs> it's not going to be the end of the world, all right? It'll be really interesting. Uh, the next person on Tewaz is Laughter. And man, this death hit me like a bag of bricks. I think this is my number two most painful in this season after Shino. She got taken out <laughs> by Jazzly via Hitman while she was buying a, a teddy bear for uh, Akihiro. And that teddy bear looked exactly like Akihiro. It had those huge eyebrows. Oh man, I was so sad. Yeah. Laughter's death was almost brutal because of how i guess normal it was you know it's a death that could happen in our world a shooting that happens in a store she didn't die in the battlefield she definitely didn't deserve to die or do anything worth dying for it was just very tragic i'd say possibly the most tragic death in the series because she was a total innocent really yeah agree yeah she was used by someone else so someone on tv tv tropes is probably really upset yeah, her and Akihiro. She was essentially the last happiness Akihiro could have had. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, what's the rest of his life mm-hmm. going to be? Just piloting mobile suits and being terrible? Yeah, I mean, you know? that, that was I mean, that was like the, the bright Not hope. being terrible. I apologize to listeners. What I meant was like piloting mobile suits and just earn money, go to combat, earn money, go into combat. That doesn't sound like a very joyful life. I don't think Akihiro would have enjoyed that very much for too much longer. He was missing missing something in his life whether it was his brother or somebody else but yeah, yeah poor laughter and she clearly liked Akihiro so it's very sad to see her go she liked him a lot i was rooting for them a lot I, i'll root for any happiness for Akihiro <laughs> 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 poor guy <laughs> yeah I, I was really hoping he would survive but maybe our expectations were way too high clearly we we were both hoping that both of them would not only survive but get together and instead not only did they never get together at all but they both died (laughs) yeah i yeah this series was such a surprise compared to i guess most of the uh the tropes we're used to with gundam series that we weren't prepared at all and didn't see a lot of things coming you know comment below if you saw a lot of things coming i'd be surprised i'd I'd call you a liar but (laughs) Yeah, I, I, really, I did not. Yeah, yeah I agree. I did yeah. not see her death coming uh, yeah. at all. Poor so. teddy bear, covered in blood. Yeah, <laughs> very well, sad. Just, just terrible. Uh, okay, how about probably the most hated man? Um, uh, Jazzly. Jazzly, he was trouble from the beginning. 
<laughs> he even dresses like a guy that's going to be trouble. He does, <laughs> yeah. With his obnoxious, I, puffy, cheetah yeah. coat. Yeah, I really liked how in the end he ended up being such a cowardly, sort of sniveling villain and really kind of begs for his life and realizes the situation's hopeless and what a mistake he made. I almost feel like, though, his actions were not impactful in the on the whole picture. Ultimately, the whole plot with McGillis really was going to go forward, whether or not Jazzy did anything. He killed some main characters, but other than that, Jazzy was very much the sub-boss of this season, but it was really good to watch him fight against them finally after all this animosity and uh, ultimately lose. Even after reaching out to McMurdo, he still loses and then, you know, tries to beg for his life or whatever, you know, take it and just takes him out on the ship. Yeah, I think the only way his death could have been better was if uh, Akihiro killed him instead of Mika. Yeah, painfully or in person or something. But yeah. Um, yeah, I was glad to see him die and he had no redeeming qualities. Yeah. Uh, okay, so on to Gallerhorn. Gallerhorn. And we're going to cut it there for this episode. Tune in next time for the conclusion to our Iron-Blooded Orphans Season 2 review, where we discuss the characters of Gallerhorn, the mobile suits, and our overall thoughts on the series. Until next time, keep those Minofsky reactors warm. <laughs>